Well, good morning. It's lovely to see some faces, um, any faces at all, frankly. Is, um, just bef- My name's Tom. I'm one of the site pastors here at Vineyard. I need to stay still about here. So if you see me wandering, feel free to point the finger at me. It's fine. Uh, some of you that know me well, there's a white elephant in the room right now. Uh, I've gr- there's something growing on my face. Um, it's a beard. It's all right. No animals died in the making of this beard. It's fine. You can call me all sorts of names afterwards. It's fine. I, I say this now because some of you are thinking, I need to make a joke. I've got to make a joke. Um, so this morning, we are continuing the series that Paul kicked off last week uh, on the Sermon of the Mount. Well, Sermon on the Mount, I should say. And it's this fascinating sermon found in the book of Matthew from chapters 5 through 7. And it's this really densely packed and really challenging sermon that Jesus gives to to anybody who will stop and and hear him at this point. Last week, Paul tackled the first section of it, which is on the Beatitudes, which is this kind of mysterious, not fully really understood um, passage that includes things like, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And things like this, which are just slightly puzzling to many of us. And Paul kind of drew out this idea that when we say, blessed are, the kind of underwritten thing that's said there is Jesus saying, congratulations to those who are poor in spirit. This real introduction to this kind of upside down kingdom that Jesus has come to inaugurate. So this week, uh, we're moving on to the next section. We're in Matthew 5, verses 11 through 16. So I'm going to read those quickly, and then we will unpick those as we go. So Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. If you are someone who's listening to Jesus at this point, up until this point, There's this idea that Jesus introduced this upside down kingdom and it kind of brings great hope because actually what it's kind of saying is the kingdom of God has come for those that have zero to offer back. And then Jesus kind of drops a bit of a bomb because he comes out and says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of things against you. And you kind of go, wait, what this, I I like the first part, Jesus, this is getting a bit uncomfortable. I'm not so sure about this bit. And from what Paul was saying last week, it's this idea, congratulations, you are being insulted. Well done. It's this really odd thing, this really uncomfortable thing. But actually, I think what Jesus is doing here is saying this kingdom is for everybody. You don't need to have anything to offer, but there there is a price and there is a cost to it. And maybe you've experienced this a bit. I think this has become increasingly... Uh, something we might experience in our day-to-day lives as people who follow Jesus. That people might assume that because we 
believe in Jesus, that we are somehow unintelligent. Maybe we're prudish in our attitudes towards things, or maybe you get called a bigot and all sorts of stuff. All these things happen. And I've been on the end of all of those at some point. And then we hear stories, not so much in this country, but around the world of physical persecution, where actually you know, people are having their homes seized, they're losing jobs, uh, they may be being maimed or raped or killed, these horrific things. And I think because of where we are in the world, we think that some of that kind of persecution is the minority, it's not the norm. But if I'm honest, the more the globe becomes smaller and we become more aware of what is happening around the world, I suspect that actually we are the ones that are in the minority, the ones that are not facing persecution like that. And this isn't, this isn't new to us. This isn't just for us to hear now. Actually, to the, those hearing in the first century when Jesus was sharing this, actually, if you look at the people that were there, some of his closest friends, his disciples, his apprentices, most of those died at the hands of executioners. And what's more in this, it's not... Jesus didn't really say you're going to be persecuted because you're going to be mean and judgmental and preachy. He says you're going to be, actually, you're going to be insulted and persecuted and falsely accused against because of him. And I don't know if you've experienced this. Um, I've had it in workplaces from time to time where they're like, you have this conversation where you get to know people and it somehow comes out that you're a Christian. And they're like, yeah. I'm going to go sit over there. I'm going to leave you to it um, because I'm scared of what you're going to say next. It's stuff like that. Um, Just these little subtle things for us here. But Jesus' message is what? When this happens, rejoice and be glad. And I don't know about you. I struggle to rejoice and be glad when things are all right. You know, my natural, my natural outlook on life that I have to fight is like pessimism. And isn't life terrible? It's all that kind of stuff. Um, But imagine actually when things really, really are bad. And some of us have experienced bad a bit more this last year, would you say? The the isolation for some of us has been crippling and being being hard. But actually when, when this kind of insult and things come, rejoice and be glad. And I think probably those listening and maybe some of us, we have two temptations at this point. The first is to be discouraged. And then the second is to run away and hide. And I think this is the the thing that the church is facing at the moment, particularly in our context, that actually we should gather in our churches and pray in our churches and be in our churches, but don't let the stuff that happens in the church, this thing of following Jesus outside of the church, because it makes people uncomfortable, it makes people not like us perhaps. I was listening to a podcast this week, two comedians you might know, so Russell Brand and Ricky Gervais, and they were talking about you know, God, atheism, religion, kind of all this stuff bundled together. Uh, and Ricky Gervais had this observation. He said, you know what? In the Bible, it actually tells Christians that they should pray in private. And they had this discussion that, I don't care, it's fine if they go to church, it's fine if they believe in Jesus, it's fine if they pray, just don't make the rest of us deal with it. That actually it should be a private thing that's locked away. And increasingly, I think it's, we're encouraged to keep it out of our friendships, keep it outside of our workplaces, um, keep it out of the pub chat when you go to the pub, because some of us can do that again, which is nice. Um, keep it out of our schools and our, our universities. Don't share it with our flatmates, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a private thing and it shouldn't be shared. 
And we see this somehow, I don't know about you, but often conversations at work will come up, oh, what are you doing this weekend? And I'll say, oh, I'm mowing the lawn, I might be getting my, I'm getting my haircut in eight days, guys, it's brilliant, I'm so excited. Getting my haircut, uh, we need to take the kids to do this, I've got to wash the car, blah, blah. I'll say all this stuff, but what I often find myself not saying is, you know what, I'm going to watch church, or I'm going to go to church. Because actually I think there's an underlying fear there that there's going to be comments, or people are just going to go quiet, and there's going to be an awkward conversation. But Jesus' response to this temptation to run away and hide, he says these, makes these two kind of metaphors, that we are the salt of the earth and that we are the light of the world. And I just want to unpack those quickly. The first metaphor then is salt. It says, you are the salt of the earth. Salt is used, I think, for the listeners would have drawn a few different images. One would be purity. That salt was used on sacrifices in the Old Testament to purify them before God. That there's this quality to salt that it is purifying. And then it's also something that brings flavor. We put salt on our food to flavor things. Some of you would argue we put salt on our food just to make it taste more salty rather than nice. Uh, That's up to you. Uh, And then uh, to bring, actually the, the metaphor here for us is that actually is followers of Jesus, we should bring flavor and richness to the world. Because there is something about creation that we often forget, that when God creates the world, actually the the earth and all of creation is good. And when the fall comes, actually it's as if it's skewed. And when, and I'm not a, a cook, so this could be wrong, Let's go with it, huh? If you've experienced my cooking, I apologize. Uh, But if you add salt to other things, you can be used to draw out the flavors that are already there. And I think there's an element of that, that as believers, we should be bringing out the goodness that is already there in a lot of creation. And the church, I think, has built a bit of a reputation for being really good at the purity bit and trying to push that on other people. But it's not so well known for being the people that bring goodness and flavor and richness to the world. Whether that's earned or whether that's just the perception, I'll leave to you to decide. And then the last way salt was used, particularly before the age of refrigeration and freezers and things like that, was it was used to keep meat and fish and other things from going off. And give them more life, more longevity. And again, this image really harkens back to the Garden of Eden. That humanity's purpose, their God-given purpose, was to actually take God's goodness and God's kingdom and spread it through all the world, beyond the realms even of of the garden, and go and do that. So maybe tomorrow, maybe you've got a Zoom call with your team at work. Maybe you are raising kids and you're trying desperately every day to invest in them. Maybe you're serving customers. Maybe you are educating pupils. Maybe you are seeing neighbors on your street who are just struggling in the loneliness of lockdown. Whatever you're doing, actually, the challenge for us is to bring a preserving presence of God wherever we go. And I would say this. Too much salt in one place is a bad thing. I don't know if you've ever put salt on chips and the lid has come off. You don't want to eat those chips. They taste disgusting. As churches, I think we've been quite good at gathering together, putting all the salt in one place and you know, preserving and bringing flavor to and bringing purity to our little bit and forgetting about the rest. Actually, this metaphor talks about those who are the salt of the earth really being spread out. 
So the questions first really are, do I bring purity? Do I bring flavor and goodness and richness as I go? Do I bring a preserving presence? But there is this kind of thing that Jesus says is, don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your saltiness. And my encouragement would be, I'm, I'm the character that's a doer. So I try and do more and do more and do more in the hope that I appear and then become like a more salt-of-the-earth character. That's my natural tendency. But that isn't where you discover actually that salt-of-the-earth quality. I think it's found in communion and community with other believers. And I think it is found in, in time with God, in the scriptures, in prayer, just with him. You can't, and this is from experience, you can't do your way into being the salt of the earth. You can't. And I think what Jesus models on this is he prays, he goes away, he retreats and he prays, and then he goes out into the world and does what he sees the Father doing. And even when it comes to Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out and these people that Jesus is saying are the salt of the earth are actually sent out, what are they doing? They're praying and waiting, and the Spirit falls upon them and empowers them to be the salt of the earth, and out they go. And then the second metaphor is light. You are the light of the world. A couple of things about light. Um, it's, we really love in church settings saying, saying that light, light really overpowers the, the darkness. That actually, if you're in a dark room and you light a candle, even a small candle can give a lot of light to that room. And actually, light doesn't, doesn't become overpowered by darkness. It runs out of energy, but it is not overpowered by darkness. And light illuminates. And when Jesus talks about light, for many of the people listening, it would have brought to them a passage such as Isaiah 42, which says this. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. That there is, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, it draws to them this, this talk of being light to the Gentiles. This is Jesus drawing the whole story of Scripture suddenly into people's imagination. That when there was the fall at the Garden of Eden, things looked terribly hopeless. It feels like God's blessings were somehow lost. But God comes to a guy named Abraham and he says, I'm going to make your family you know, a mighty nation and they are going to bless the whole world. They're going to bring about some of that blessing, some restoring some of that human identity. And this becomes Israel. That family becomes Israel, this group. But when, by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, nothing terribly meaningful has happened to achieve this beyond the realm of this extended family, this nation. So Jesus comes and he is the light of the world. But then he says to us, if you follow me, you are the light of the world. And it's to be a light specifically to those outside of the family, as it were. He says, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. I live in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's a village called Walgrave. You have no reason to go there at all whatsoever uh, because it's in the middle of nowhere. 
But at night time, if I stand on a hill, you know, there's a decent field, you can go stand up and you can look around. At night time, I can see more villages than I can in the daytime because they are lit up in the darkness. And we need to imagine maybe if you are traveling between settlements at this point, it, the dark is enveloping you, the cold is setting in, it's windy, it's raining, maybe there's storms. If you are in that position and you don't know where to go, the thing you would look for is a settlement with some light because where that light is, there is refuge, there is safety. And I think we've lost some of this understanding because we live in an age of big cities and big lights. Like I, The one thing I can see from our village is Kettering on one side and Northampton on the other, glowing bright orange in the sky. We've lost some of that sense of we need to go to these places to find refuge. But spiritually, this is still a thing. It's still a dark place out there spiritually. That hasn't changed. We live in this broken world where people are hurting and lonely and they're lost and they're pulled in this way and that way. Who are they going to turn to when they realize where they are and the danger they are in? Who are they going to look for? And Jesus says, actually, we need to be like a, a, a lamp that illuminates a room. And he's, you know, he says, you, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That is a silly activity. Like, like if I come to your house and you light a candle and put a, something over it, I'm going to tell you that's silly. Okay? Because the whole purpose of it is what? To light up the room. But the temptation in our current culture is to do exactly that. To be the light of the world, but be it under our own nice little bowl, because we don't want anyone else to see it and be offended. The big idea of all of these metaphors is that Jesus' followers are to play a visible role in society as agents of the kingdom of God. What's, what is a visible role? Is it more posts on Instagram? Is it preaching on street corners with a megaphone? And hey, look, if you've got the gift for that, God bless you. I do not. <laughs> in verse 16, Jesus gives us some indication of what he's drawing us toward. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus' followers should be known for what they do to enable human flourishing. And the end result of that, we're told here, should be that people see what we are doing, see the light and the salt that we are, and then they glorify our Father in heaven. And maybe you hear this and inside your, your quiet, honest prayer to God is, but God, you don't know what I'm up against in my office. You don't know how much my family hate me going to church, let alone trying to show your love to them. You don't know how often I'm called a bigot at university or at school. You don't know how the other mums at the playgroup treat me when they discover that I'm a Christian. Lord, you don't know me and my flaws. If you knew that, you wouldn't call me salt of the earth. You wouldn't call me light of the world. And to you, I think Jesus would say something quite simple and beautiful like, abide in me. I'll show you where the Father is at work. I died on the cross so that you didn't have to hide in the shadows of shame because of that addiction to pornography. 
You don't have to be bound up by the shame of overeating and the fact you can't escape that. You don't have to hide away because you don't trust yourself to not gossip. Actually, Jesus came to light up the darkest part of us, and that's part of us being a light to the world. That is part of us becoming more salt-of-the-earth people. You're not a captive anymore. I came to light up the dark spaces in you as well. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. Come, my son. Come, my daughter. I have good works already prepared for you. And I promise that I am with you. See, it's not from our greatness or our goodness that we are to be this salt of the earth, light of the world people. The power to live out the mission of God can only come from the Spirit of God. My own prayer life is kind of changing around this from God do more through me because that's that doer part of me that wants to do everything and try and save the world by myself secretly. That's the underlying tone of that prayer, right? To Lord, change me, deal with my pride and show me what it means to be a fool for you. Because it's the pride that stops me doing this because secretly I don't want to look an idiot. I don't want to be insulted or persecuted or have people say bad things about me that are false. So God's got to do a work in me first. And the reality is that being the salt of the earth, being the light of the world, does what? It probably does more of what Jesus started talking about here. It probably means we become the, the end of insults and we become persecuted. That's kind of part and parcel of this, I think. But Jesus promised, he talks about it at the end of Matthew, his promise is what? That he will be with us to the end of the age. That as we are persecuted because of him, he's with us. My own experience of evangelism courses in a church setting often comes down to uh, this, the passage from 1 Peter. You need to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have. Which is good, it's not bad. And you end up preparing these like 90 second testimonies because you realize that as you're sharing them, people are going, this person's nuts. I've got 90 seconds to share this, right? That's the underlying stuff going on there. And it's great, but my 90 second testimony that I've prepared, I have never used. Not once. John Tyson in his book, A Creative Minority, says, far too often Christians spend time working on the answer for a question People are simply not asking because our lives look identical to those around us. The question for me is, do I place the light under a bowl? Do I just want to blend in? And I've been challenged on this in a number of ways. And we've just tried stuff to, to change how we live to be a bit more generous. One thing we did, uh, we, had, we gave out some Christmas gifts at Christmas. Obviously, that's when you give Christmas gifts, even in lockdown. Um, but I was amazed at the response to that. Something so simple. You know, we gave out some shortbread from Aldi. Like, it's, it was nothing. And yet, people came knocking on our door to thank us and just opened up a world of people on our street. About this time, no, March last year, April last year, I took a job. Uh, with a small design studio somewhere in Bedfordshire. And I was just challenged. I was like, God, what can I do here? Because for years I've talked about, oh, I could do this and that and the other. But I've been self-employed, so kind of worked on my own. But this was an opportunity to do something. 
And just as I was driving, I've just felt challenged. Take the last parking space. Take the one that's furthest away. I was like, well, that's all right, fine. I can do that, God. That seems weird, but all right, fine. And as I mulled it over, I realized it's, it reflects something of actually serve others first. Treat others as if they are better than you. you know, some of that language that Paul talks about particularly. And you know what? People asked me why I did it. And I'll tell you what I wish I'd said. I wish I'd said it's because Jesus loves you. And my example to you is that you come before me. I, didn't, I said nothing anywhere near as eloquent as that because I, was, I, was so, I didn't even think to prepare anything. I was like, parking in the end space. No one's going to care. But genuinely, people are like, why do you part there? And that worked better for me than posting something on Instagram about Jesus or church or anything else. It was changing my behavior. Even tiny, tiny little things, things that you think are so insignificant that nobody would ever notice. Maybe that's a good place to start for you. And what if we can change collectively and individually, change how we view our lives, that we, we look and we go, how can we change our lives so that people do ask the questions? What if when people get the cancer diagnosis, the people they go to in their community is us? Or they, they sit down and they have that conversation with their spouse and they are handed divorce papers. I would say, I dare to say that many people in that situation, the last place they would want to go is the church. Because our reputation is, we dislike divorce. Fine, that's in scripture. But we don't dislike the people. We don't stop loving the people. It's a really difficult thing. But what if we changed and became so warm and inviting and did hospitality so well that people turned to us? When they're in those dark places, they look up and they see the city on the hill and it is people that love and follow Jesus. Uh, okay, Ben, do you want to head on up? And maybe you hear this and you go, oh man, it sounds like I've got to be doing stuff and I have to be careful because I'm the doing guy, right? We've been through this a couple of times now. But what I've observed in myself is if I take even two minutes to pray in the morning and go, okay, Father, would you open up those conversations? Would you present those opportunities to love people better? I am always amazed that it happens. Do you ever find yourself doing that? You are surprised that God answers prayer, right? If you're honest, right? And even as I'm sharing this, I think for some of us, that God is putting people on your heart. And they're not actually the people you expect, necessarily. And some of you, your response to this is to feel shame. So you haven't been more salt of the earth, more light of the world. Could I just rebuke that? That's, that's not the Holy Spirit at work. The Holy Spirit might come to convict us and to change us. But shame is not from, from God. And actually, it's about walking with Jesus, because Ephesians tells us, that actually the Lord has already prepared works in advance for us to do. It's already there. It's waiting for us. And that's the sweet spot where we stop trying to do and do and do, and we walk with Jesus, and he shows us what is happening, what is he wants to do in the world. So should we pray? 
So, Father, I, I, frankly, I'm amazed that you call somebody like me to be salt of the earth and light of the world. Because I know me. But Lord, we thank you that, that your words are true. And for each of us, would you just nudge us as we go about our days? Holy Spirit, would you nudge us? Would you draw people to our attention? Would you show us the ways in which we can love the world, the ways in which we can be different? Father, would you show us where you are at work? And would you give us the boldness to do those things as well? And Holy Spirit, would you just begin to deal in those of us who just think, I'm not the salt of the earth, I'm not the light of the world. Holy Spirit, would you just begin to uproot some stuff in us and change us so that, not that we can believe in ourselves, but so that we can trust and believe in you wholeheartedly and the things that you say. Amen.